Peace be with you. What a joy it is to gather together to sing gospel-centered songs, to, to worship the Lord uh, together. Uh, some of you were here uh, a couple weeks ago when I fell ill in the middle of service, and I just want to thank you guys for uh, your prayers. I'm so grateful for our pastors and those who, who serve this, this church, and uh, that the Lord is a, is a healer, and uh, that we have a community here where people reach out and, and love us. So. Uh, got a lot of messages from people throughout the congregation making sure I was okay, and I am. And uh, we appreciate your ongoing prayers. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive right in uh, to today's uh, sermon. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for the gift of the church, for your ecclesia, your called out ones. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here through your spirit, that you would give us clarity of mind and, and heart. That your Holy Spirit would minister to us in specific ways, that you would awaken our hearts, that you would give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you would allow your word to enlighten our eyes and stir up our hearts and heal us. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Steve McAvey says that the church is facing a threefold predicament. He says the first predicament that the church is facing is a relational predicament. 93% of American men, when asked, said that they feel that they have no close friends. And I suspect the number in the church um, isn't much lower. People are lonely, disconnected, don't feel comfortable sharing their most um, troublesome burdens. We're used to uh, community groups and meeting with friends and giving vague responses. Vague sharing, and as a result, many people feel lonely. Your pastors here, we experience this ourselves as we care for many of our members when things begin to spiral out of control in a person's life. And one of the questions we ask is, who knows about this? Who is walking closely with you? And oftentimes the response is simply no one. There is a relational predicament. Second, there is a transformation predicament. It is uh, no secret that many Christians within our culture listen to sermons each week, read blog posts, listen to their favorite podcast preaching. We have a, a number of streams pouring into us, yet we see that there is little transformation as compared to the world. Divorce rate in the church is not much lower than the world's. Men report using pornography um, at about the same rate as those who are non-Christians. It appears that uh, our view of money is about the same and what we spend money on. Jesus says that a parameter of the heart, a parameter of the soul is 
sacrificial giving, yet per capita only 2%, only uh, Christians only give 2% of their income, which is significantly lower than what we believe Jesus would call us to. There is a transformational predicament. Third, there is a consumerism predicament. I think it's true that 20% of people who come to church regularly make up for 80% of the service of the church. I think it's true that we are used to meeting in community groups and Sunday school classes and, and having conversation and sharing, but it, it really ends there. The model that we see in the Bible is not just some, some vague sharing about our, our lives, but it is intentional investing in other people's lives, like Moses did with Joshua, Elijah with Elisha, or Paul with Timothy. Yet, the average American Christian has become comfortable with receiving or barely giving out. We have a consumerism predicament. And the question is, how do we get out of this predicament? How do we lean into our identity as disciples? Well, Dallas Willard says this. Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the many moral failures, financial abuses, or amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of an underlying problem. And as we continue our series on the Christian identities and looking at our five identities as Christians today, we want to deal with this identity of a disciple and what it means to be a disciple because I believe that this identity that, the, that Jesus has given us and that he calls us to live into helps us to overcome these relational transformation and consumeristic predicaments. It helps us to be the people of God and to flourish and to help other people to flourish and to live as human beings and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. So to help us to lean into this identity, to overcome this predicament as individuals, but also as those who are part of the church, we want to look at three snapshots. We want to look at the aim, the qualification, and the call of a disciple by doing a, a quick overview of what Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew about what it means to be a disciple of his. And the first comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Jesus is talking to Peter and Andrew, and he meets them while they're on a boat working. And then right after this, past, uh, this text we're going to read, he says a similar thing and calls two other brothers, John and James, the sons of Zebedee. And he says to them, follow me. I will make you fish for people. And this is a good working definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, who is being changed by Jesus, who is living and committed to the mission of Jesus. He calls these fishermen to, to forsake uh, what they were doing and to commit to him, to follow him. That is, to actively follow him in the present and to ongoingly follow him. That is, to follow him means to make a decision with their head. 
to commit their hearts and to give him their hands. And we see that Peter and Andrew, John and James, they do just that. They enter into the school of Jesus. To be a disciple means to become a student of Jesus. This is rabbinic speech. Jesus saying, become my students. Be apprenticed to me. Join my school. Live with me. Rabbis homeschooled their apprentices. Rabbis took these students into their homes and they didn't just merely transfer information, but it was an invitation to learn and to experience transformation. This was a call to be committed to this teacher and to allow his principles, his worldview, his life to transform theirs. And all of us, we know what it means to be committed. All of us do. And some of us, we're committed to our favorite television show. I'm not gonna lie, I'm committed to This Is Us. Judge me if you want to. There is now no condemnation. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Some of y'all are committed to that television show, whether it's America's Got Talent, Football season. Yesterday, some of y'all was glued to that television. Come heck of hot water, you were not moving. Your favorite team was playing. UofL was playing, and we knew it was going to be rough against Alabama, but we were committed. You know what it means to be committed. For some of us, it's an image that we're committed to. We will not eat if that means uh, uh, that we get to have our hair cut, our shoes tight, and, and present ourselves well in public. And some of y'all are like, no, I'm going to eat. I can care less about how I look. Why? Because you're committed. You're committed to that food, that taste, savoring. We all know what it means to be committed. And Jesus is saying that his disciples are those who are committed to follow him, to be transformed by him, to live on mission for him. Being a disciple means that we reject cultural Christianity, which is a false version of Christianity. Cultural Christianity sees the Christian faith as, as a, a social club. It's religion without Christ's lordship. 75% of Americans identify themselves as being Christian, yet we know that there's no way that 75% of people in America are actively, presently following Jesus with their minds, submitting their minds to what he teaches being transformed by his gospel and good news, and who are actively living on mission, what are they committed to? They're committed to his silhouette. They're committed to his comfort. They're committed to uh, ideas, but they're not committed to him and the areas that he calls them to pick up their cross and follow him. They kind of slide around or do hermeneutic gym, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to make the Bible say something that it is not saying and mean something that it does not mean so that they can build really their American dream and way of life. That's not what Jesus calls us to do. It's not what he calls us to be. He calls us to submit to his lordship. Listen, you can come to church every Sunday. You can know your Bible better than everybody in this building. 
You could have prayed the prayer and been baptized a hundred times. But that does not make you a disciple of Jesus. What makes you a disciple of Jesus is the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart and new affections for him. And that's what we see second is the qualifications of a disciple in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says the aim of discipleship is commitment to holistic transformation. The qualifications of a disciple is one who is weary and worn out. One who is broken. One who is tired. One who sees that life has become a grind, that their existence is laborsome, that the juice has gone out and that all is left is rind. Jesus says, my heart goes out to you and I offer you rest. Some of us, we see God as a CEO and we are his spiritual accountants. And what we do every day, we kind of measure ourselves up as best as we can. And we, we add up our good deeds versus our bad ones. We say things like, you know, I, I read my Bible today. I, I gave someone who was low in funds $5. I was gentle and kind to my best friends or to, to my spouse. And then we look at that as good and we have another category of, of the bad. You say, you know, I was, I was a little greedy today. I, I, I was lustful today. And we add it up at the end of the day hoping that our righteousness and our, our, our works are enough. But you know that that is exhausting. That is tired. Tiring. And, and you know that the God is it's not pleased because what haunts you is the guilt of your sin and your transgressions. And Jesus, as he's writing here, uh, as he is speaking here in the Gospel of Matthew, as he is recording, he's saying, listen, enough of that. Come to me. The qualifications of a disciple is one who has realized that, that their righteous account will never be enough, that they are tired of, of trying, that in their own strength they are failing. And he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. But notice what he says in verse 29. You would expect him to say, I'll give you rest. And rest means a vacation. Rest means a mattress. Rest means comfort. But instead, he gives equipment. Take my yoke. Take my yoke. Yoke. Some equipment that was put on two oxes to help the ox to, to carry a load, to keep them balanced. And Jesus gives this yoke, and he doesn't give us this kind of false utopia that being in him means that there is no, no trouble. Instead, he gives and offers realism. Life in a fallen world is substantial. Life in a fallen world is hard. Life in a fallen world is sometimes confusing and, and, and perplexing. And it, and it seems to take things out of you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not coming now. Now is not the time for me to relieve all of the 
brokenness of the world, but what I have come to do is to give you the equipment to live a balanced life, to, to carry the load of, of endemic sin and our brokenness so that you can have joy and rest in me. He says, my yoke, my discipleship, my apprenticeship, my mentorship, is what I offer you. He says, don't just learn about me. This isn't an academic exercise. He says, learn from me. Learn how to live a transformed life. It's less of a picture of a professor, more of a picture of a, of a grandmother who, who calls her grandchild in, who wants her to, to, to learn or him to learn how to do her secret recipe, a cake. And rather than just give the recipe and hand it to that grandchild, she pulls up a stool and says, watch me. And she puts that rep recipe to, to work and she shows how she pours and how she mixes and how she, she bakes and what she's working on while it's baking. She tutors that, that grandchild and says, this is how you do it. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are laden, all of you who see life as laborious, all of you who are broken and ready to give up, who sees that your righteousness is not enough, who sees the, and feels the burden of your sins, who have experienced the burden of condemnation. He says, come to me, your Savior, your Lord. Look to me by faith. Be forgiven of sins and let me teach you how to carry life's pain and disappointments, how to overcome your wish list, how to submit to me in a sea. I love what he says, that I am humble and lowly of heart. He says, I won't beat you up further. I will not bruise a broken reed. Come. The question today is, will you come? If you've never accepted Jesus in the pardon of your sins, Come. What he requires is not you having yourself together, but what he requires is you being poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. What he requires is you to mourn. What he requires is you to hunger and thirst out after him. And, and if you don't have that today, beg and say, Lord, bring me to an end of myself that I may have true life. Give me your yoke. Help me to count the cross and to follow you third call of a disciple is not only a call of commitment to reject cultural Christianity, it's not only weariness and brokenness, but it's also for us to come to a place to accept what Jesus has called us to do. When I was in college, I was serious about intramural basketball with my friends. I mean, we prepared in the off-season like we were playing in the NBA. And there was over 160 intramural teams. And one year, we put together the best team we had. And I had a friend named Steve Hetzel. Steve is now an NBA coach. He coaches for the uh, Orlando Magic. Steve was a basketball genius. He started off as an equipment manager for Michigan State University. Tom Izzo discipled him. And he moved up in the organization and eventually helped the San Antonio Spurs, Cleveland Cavaliers, Detroit Pistons, and now the Orlando Magic as a coach. Steve was a bad man. 
I'll never forget the first game that we had of this intramural season. We were facing a team that we sized up and we said, oh, this is going to be easy. And everything that could go wrong in that game went wrong. By the end of the game, we were like yelling at each other, completely unraveling. It's three seconds left. It's a tight game. We're all going back to the bench. And Steve calls us into a huddle and he draws up a play. And I knew when he drew up the play that this wasn't something he just made up. He stole this play from his own. And he gave us a motivational speak. And he said, Jamal, I want you to come off this pick, catch the ball. If we run it right, you've got a wide open lane and you've got a final shot. And that's exactly what happened. Came off a screen, got the ball, three dribbles, half court, shot it. It looked a little off. And it's almost as if an angel took the ball, <laughs> directed it, and allowed it to go in. And we went crazy. Now, I was excited about that for two reasons. Number one is it helped save me in the eyes of a young lady that I was digging. She was singing today, and she's now my wife. Amen? Because up until that point, she, had, she heard me talk basketball, but she never saw me play. And if all she had was that game to go by, she'd probably be like, this brother is a scrub. <laughs> but the second thing it taught me was this. When you have a good coach, all you have to do is run the play. Jesus here, as he's talking to his disciples just before he's going to ascend to heaven, after being resurrected from the dead, defeating death, brings them together and he gives them the final play. And what we're, what we're betting on as we run this play is not some, some angel just by luck helping us. What we're, what we're putting our hope in is in the fact that Jesus has given us not only the play, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that we are able to do this in the name of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the play. The play, he says, is to make disciples. Listen, God has not saved you. God has not saved me so that we can live the American dream and every now and then uh, uh, do what he says. God has saved us so that we would follow Jesus, the one who snatched us from darkness and brought us into the marvelous light. God has saved us so that we can look to this Christ who has ordained all things and who is before all things and find our satisfaction and hope in him. God has made us so that we can experience the transformational power of Jesus Christ so that we can have a testimony that said, I once was. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was addicted, but now I am experiencing victory. I once was hopeless, but now I have joy. I once was crushed, but now I have life. God has not saved us to be comfortable and to be consumers, but rather to be committed and to be changed. Yes. But that in there. He saved us so that we can be disciples that make disciples. Not disciples that make money for the sake of making money. Not disciples that make ourselves famous for the sake of making ourselves famous. Not disciples that have two kids and a, a cute dog with a, a, with a comfortable fence around our house so that we can uh, sip a pina, pina colada at the end of the day and say life is good. He's made disciples so that we can share this hope with people who are hopeless so that we can set up a shop 
one foot away from the gates of hell and snatch people who are headed towards eternal damnation from eternal damnation and to eternal life. God has saved us so that we, like that grandma, can pull up a soul and, and, and teach people what it means to follow Jesus. Two observations from the Great Commission. I just want to point out quick. Number one, that we are to be discipling non-believers. If Jesus made you a disciple, your goal, your call is to get to a place where you are able to teach people what you have learned in the scripture. To share. That's what discipleship is. It's sharing your God-given resources with someone else. It's helping them to apply what they know about Jesus to the day-to-day -day grind. And it's messy. It takes a long time. And when we start, the Bible says, with people who don't know Jesus. We disciple non-believers, though non-believers are not disciples. So in this text, we see there is one imperative that is to make disciples. And it is supported by three participles. It's go, literally, original language, move out. Move out. Now remember who he's talking to. People who are afraid and broken. Disciples who are just cowarding and afraid because Christ had been crucified. He's not talking to the most courageous. In fact, in the same text in Matthew 28 and verse 16, it says that some of them was worshiping and others were doubting. He's talking to, to people who have a limp. People, people who don't have it all together. He's saying, go, move out. Make disciples. How do you make a disciple? By going, by baptizing. By baptizing. By helping people to see that Jesus is Lord and to go through the symbol of being a part of his family and by teaching them to obey what? All that he has commanded. He's not calling us merely to make converts. He's saying make disciples. It's interesting. 90% of Jesus' ministry 90% of Jesus' ministry was spent with the 12. Only 10% of Jesus' ministry in the gospel was spent before crowds. Yet, in American Christian culture, we have it reversed. 90% of our spirituality comes from us coming to church and listening to sermons. From us listening to podcasts. From us reading. That's, that's, those things are good. How shall we believe if, if it's not for the preaching of the word, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. But only 10% of our Christian experience is actually spent in front of people. Yet Jesus' model for discipleship was more of a crock pot than it was a microwave. Jesus' model of discipleship was intentional relationships. Jesus' model for discipleship was committing himself for a few over a specific period of time and taking them through the Christian life. Listen, God has called you and me to do the same. And the question is, it's like, Lord, how do we do that? I'm so, I'm so frazzled sometimes. I don't know how to apply the scripture to my own life sometimes. Every time I, I feel like I'm... I'm doing it, something in life comes and it knocks me off. I go into a new season, it's like starting all over. We make disciples in, 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 in the messiness of life. And we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the one who's resurrected. After Jesus defeated death on that mountain, he went to the disciples and he said this, all power. Hmm. 
preach. Not some power. All power. He says all power in heaven and in earth belongs to me. He said, I've got the keys to death. I've got the keys to eternal life. I'm the one that's in control. All power is in my hands. And he showed that he was committed to us. This eternal Savior chose to, to put on human flesh, to, to come down 42 generations, to be held in the arms of, of Mary as a, as a baby, to be limited to time and space, though he was holding all things together. He says, all power is in my hands. He walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem. He walked a, and lived a, a sinless life. He was whipped and a bruise for, for our transgressions. He took 39 lashes, save one, with a, a cat of nine whip. He set his eyes on Golgotha's hill. Yes, the entire time he chose to, to only love those who were persecuted. He said, all power is in my hands. He traveled that Via Dolorosa, the, the road of sorrow, so that we would have life. He allowed them to stretch him wide and, and hang him high and, and drop him low. All power of uh, thorns was placed upon his head. He was stripped naked in front of his mother and a few disciples. Yet he said, all power. He allowed them to put him in Joseph's borrowed tomb. And he was left for dead for, for, for two days and one morning. But on a third day, he got up with all control in his hand. And now he who ascended is on the right hand side of the Father interceding for you and I. And he is coming back again one day to make all things right. But he's saying, my beloved, I saved you. Not so that you can be comfortable. Not so that you can live in a Christian bubble or cocoon. Not so that you can be, be hip and, and, and fun and liked by everybody. But I saved you so that you can live on mission for me. So that you can tell a dying world about a living Savior and say, he picked me up and turned me around. He placed my feet on solid ground. He gave me a song and gave me a testimony. And though sometimes I hurt and sometimes I'm confused, I, I know that he is with me and he'll never leave me. That's what he said in the text. I'll never leave you. Even to the end of the world. We make, we make, we make, we make disciples through the power of a triune God by faith. Not for salvation, but from salvation. Yes, good. Because we've set our eyes and our affection on Christ. The story is told that in 1985, Coca-Cola found themselves in a predicament. Their brand had been suffering. Pepsi came on board. Maybe it was a Michael Jackson commercial. I don't know, but... Everybody started running to Pepsi. Coca-Cola's executives, they came back. They hired a hotshot to come in and help them to fix the problem. The gentleman came in in the board meeting. He put a box on the board and he said, what makes us unique? Why do people stay committed to this brand? What has got us to this point? And the number one answer was taste. So he wrote taste and he says, the problem is, is that Pepsi has come with a new taste. And what we have to do is we have to meet them by coming up with something that tastes better, something that's fresh and new. That's what they did. They ran a campaign about the new Coke. 
Those Dorians told that that didn't go too well. There was a massive uproar from their base, and they said, this is crazy. We don't want this new Coke. So they came back into the room without the hotshot person who helped them, and they said, what have we learned? And what they learned is that people didn't want a new taste, but rather they learned that they had gotten away from Coca-Cola's tradition. So inside the box, they put the word tradition. Some of you know the story, that they began a new ad called Classic Coca-Cola. And this new ad was appreciated by all Coke lovers and it caught on that we are a company about tradition and about our tastes. And the brands uh, went up, overtook Pepsi. And you know there's some profound picture there that I want to ask you, Sojourn, as you think about Sojourn Community Church, what would you put in that box? As you think about your own life, what would you put in that box? Would you put hip? Would you put good music? Would you put great coffee? Would you put good friendships? I hope that none of those questions, none of those answers is what you would put. I pray that what we would put is not even discipleship, but Jesus. And that we'll get back to what Jesus has called us to do, and that we will run the play. Make disciples. If anything else is in the box, we are building our lives on sand. Make disciples, Jesus. Your pastors, we've been working really hard, especially over the last six months, to get make sure that we're hitting that basics and that we are making disciples. We've We've prayed, we're studying from some of the best churches in the country on, on how they are helping people to be faithful disciples who are making disciples. We, we are troubled by these, this predicament of the church, and we want to make sure that for the next 50 years, unless Jesus comes back, the Sojourn Community Church is, is flourishing and making disciples. So I ask you to do two things. One, I ask you to pray for your pastors as we are learning together, build relationships, critiquing where we are in order that we can feel this great commission together. But two, I ask you to, to do an examination this morning if you're a Christian before you take communion and ask yourself this question. If, if someone was to look at your life in this last week, what would they put in that box? Would it be pain? Would it, would it be sin? Would it be comfort? Would it be your name? Would it be your children's name? Or would it be, would it be Jesus? And then to plead with the Lord, you empower my heart to put Jesus back in that box. And every Sunday when we gather together, we take a meal called communion together. And this meal helps us to, to focus on Jesus. This meal does four things for us. One, it helps us to look backwards. Jesus says, often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It reminds us that the cross and resurrection of Jesus is what's most important and it reminds us that we're loved, and the proof of that love is through a broken body, a sinless broken body. Two, not only does it help us to look backwards, it helps us to look inward. It helps us, us to examine our own life over the week, but it also helps us to look outward to see, is there anyone, Lord, that I do not have peace with, that there's disunity, and would you help me to make amends with my brother and sister in Christ? But finally, it helps us to look forward. 
to the day when Jesus will come and we will be in a new heavens and new earth and we will suck with him. As a discipled family. If you're not a Christian, we ask you to come to Christ today. Come to me, all you are laden in heavy labor. Receive rest. Receive apprenticeship. See him as Lord of your life. Those of you in the front half of the room, come to the front to take communion. Back half of the room, go to my back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's examine ourselves. Let's set our affections on Christ. Let's believe in the power of his transformation. Let's believe in progressive sanctification, that we are not changed overnight, but we continue to experience change as we move forward in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.